The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Lloyd, our show today is about something very, very important in trying to heal conflict in our society, and that is about restorative justice. And I read this wonderful article called Living Justice, the Evolving Field of Restorative Justice by Carl Stauffer, Ph.D. And so we invited him to be on, and he's, a, he's wonderful, so you're going to get to hear him. But let me tell you a little bit about his interesting background. He is... Um, Carl, Dr. Carl Stoffer teaches justice and development studies at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding in Eastern, at Eastern Mennonite University. And he is there on the East Coast. In fact, uh, I think he's in beautiful Harrisburg, Virginia, which I'll get a kick out of talking to him because I've been there when I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. I got to go all over Virginia. Mr. Stoffer was born and raised amidst the war in Vietnam. In fact, in 1975, his family fled Vietnam and moved to the Philippines just as Marco's regime was beginning to crumble. So that's a lot of stress and challenge and conflict in his life. After completing his university education in 1985, Stoffer worked in the criminal justice and substance abuse fields. And then in 1988, he was ordained to the ministry and he joined an urban interracial church plant and community development project in the inner city of Richmond, Virginia. In 1991, Stouffer became the first executive director of the Capital Area Victim Offender Mediation Program in Richmond. And in 1994, Stouffer and his family moved to South Africa under the auspices of the Mennonite Central Committee. And that is a faith-based international relief and development agency. Then in South Africa, he worked with various transitional processes, such as peace accords, community police forums, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and local community development structures. And then, and from then until from 2000 into 2009, Stouffer was appointed to the Mennonite Central Committee uh Peace ad, to be the peace advisor for South Africa region, and his work has taken him to 20 African countries and 10 other countries in the Caribbean, Middle East, Europe, and the Balkans. So he has a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with trying to bring peace in conflict areas, and we're so thrilled to have him join us from Virginia. Thanks so much, Carl, for joining us. Sure. It's my pleasure. 
Well, Carl, with that kind of a background, why don't you tell us a little bit about how your your early upbringing really affected and, and helped you to become who you are today? Well, I would I would say it definitely did affect. And when I t- uh, my my what I do today, and when I talk to young people and college students, I'm often reminding them that your your background don't take it for granted. Don't um, think that it has uh, no bearing on who you are and what you become. And uh, growing up in Vietnam in the midst of the war uh, was a significant experience. Uh, 1968, for those who would know a little bit about the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive, where the North Vietnamese soldiers actually came into the city in Saigon. So the fighting permeated Saigon where we lived. And I remember, I was very young at the time, four or five years old, but I remember crawling under the bed with my mom and as the house was shaking and and hearing the empty bullet shells uh, sprinkling across our corrugated tin roof, uh, my father at the radio trying to figure out what was going on, where the fighting was, how close it was to our home. What we didn't know is the fighting had come within about a half mile of our home. Mm. And uh, it was a 13-year-old girl who break, broke curfew, came over to our house, and actually told us of a way to get out of the back of our house through a sort of um, a shack settlement, small alleyways, um, and we all, uh, five of us as a family, got on a little scooter and made our way to another part of the city that was safer. Oh, so terrifying. These impressions are, are deep and, and full, and I can remember pictures of burnt-out tanks and uh, the dead bodies of, of soldiers. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so these imprints leave a lasting, lasting mark, and, and I think I saw the signs of war and felt the pain and the trauma of war as a child. And uh, to my parents' credit, never felt terrorized or traumatized to the point where I wasn't able to to go forward in my life, but certainly it had a deep impact on why I work for peace and justice yes. now. Yes, what an impact. So, so how did that, you know, I guess, where are you going with your vision now and your purpose in life? Well, I think, um, you know, having the experience uh, in the field, and I count those 16 years in Africa as, as absolutely critical to the heart and, and soul of what I do. And um, so Africa has taught me a lot. It's left a huge imprint on my life. And um, and there's many, many things I could say about Africa and the culture and, and the cultures and the diversity there and, and the situations of conflict and what they've taught me. But my real interest is to continue to have the conversation in this global setting around a justice that satisfies. In other words, um, we have a justice system a Western legal system that has, that has gone around the globe and in many ways has accomplished great things. But at the same time, I, being someone who's worked on the ground in many post-war reconstruction processes, have seen the gap between justice as we understand it in our formal criminal justice system and what people really want and desire on the ground. And there's a big gap there. And so I often use the question, what does justice feel like when I talk to my students? Because we can talk about justice theoretically. We can talk about it in legal terms and in legal codes. But what does it feel like? And what do people really want when they talk about justice? And I think we've, we've, we've got caught up in the institutions of justice and maybe even the, the outside um, uh, uh, dressing up and the language of justice. Uh, and as far as our current legal system. But there's so much more to justice when we talk about humanly satisfying justice. So my goal is to have that conversation here mm-hmm. in the States or overseas. 
Yes. And so let's talk about the difference between what we maybe think here in the States of justice versus what restorative justice is and how we treat that in our society. Sure. And maybe I'll just say a, a, a bit of just a thumbnail sketch of, of restorative justice as a field. Uh, in, its, in its current form, it really is a new field, a new discipline that, that started in the early 70s. Uh, 1970s here in this country, or actually in Canada, the first case. And it was really a very simple procedure. It was a group of community and church folk who said there's got to be another way to work with the juvenile offenders. And there had been a spate of, um, of a bunch of young uh, youth offenders in, in a small town in, in Canada who went through the, through the neighborhood on sort of a joy spree um, damaging property. And, um, and the probation officer involved was connected to some church and neighborhood folk who were concerned, and they brought these young people together and asked the court system, the criminal justice system, if they could take them to visit their victims as a way of just trying to make amends. So right. they literally took these young guys and went door by door and said, these are the guys that damaged your car, or these are the guys, and had these conversations with all kinds of people, from people who wanted to kill them to little old women who invited them in for tea and cookies. <laughs> but what it was is it was this powerful demonstration that if we can get the victim and offender together, which our current system says they're arch enemies, they shouldn't get together, and actually have them talk as human beings, something transpires. And justice is, comes out of that in a very particular way, a very important way. Well, many times when the offender does something to hurt another person, they don't see them as real human beings. That's right. And and that's the problem when they start to really see them as human beings and talk with them and, and the hurts and the the lives that they've lived, I think that makes a, a huge difference. Absolutely. So let's talk let's do like you had a comparison chart right. in your article about punitive justice versus restorative justice. And and you know, in our society we basically have that punitive justice. The punitive justice, uh, as the word punitive means, is really based on punishment. That's the core organizing factor in our justice system. How do we punish? And in order to punish correctly, I'm using these terms uh, in, in quotations, so to speak, we focus on who to blame. So the first part of ours is finding out who to blame, who's guilty, not guilty. The second question we ask is once we find out who's to blame, how do we punish them or how do we administer pain? And then, thirdly, uh, we isolate, uh, and that's why our correction system is, bloom- is booming as much as it is. Unfortunately, we haven't done enough research to really justify our system for a number of reasons. First of all, there isn't a direct connection between punishment and reformation. In other words, people going through our system are not necessarily changing. So we need to ask why. Restorative justice says we ask a different set of questions. The, f- the set of questions, instead of who's to blame, who's guilty, who can, we, who can we put this on, in restorative justice we ask, what harms have, have occurred as a result of the actions of all of the people involved here? What harms have occurred? What needs have grown out of those harms, human needs? And then whose responsibility or obligation is it to make those harms and needs right, to, to try to make right what's been done? Instead of administering pain, restorative justice says, how do we get people to understand their responsibility? Sometimes that comes through different forms, like shame. Uh, but abound, uh, uh, I use shame very carefully because I know it's controversial. Uh, it's not shame that says you're a bad person forever. 
it's shame that says, this has affected people, these are the consequences, we'd like you to hear the story of the person. It's about being accountable, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then we concentrate on reparations, restitution, and rehabilitation of the person that's been, that's been hurt, and the victim who's been traumatized. The beauty about restorative justice is it brings the victim, the offender, the community, and the state all together to work as a team around justice, as opposed to our punitive justice. Current justice system really concentrates on the state and the offender, and the victim and the community have been left out of that equation. And also, when you have this, this punitive, uh, and it's, there are, people are isolated from all the rest of the society. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be, you know, if they're killers or something. Sure. But but um, when they're isolated, they, at least as I see in a lot of the jails, that these gangs have their own society to create more problems. They just, it's us against them, you know, almost like the, you know, the evil versus the, 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 the good. Instead of really focusing on rehabilitation, you're just isolating. What, what we've discovered, and, and statistics bear this out, if we were to go into most prisons across the United States and probably around the world, about 60 to 70 percent of the persons currently serving in prison would first identify themselves as victims. Victims of the state, victims of dysfunctional family, victims of abuse, victims of the community or gangs or whatever. Right. And, and they first identify that way. And if that's the case, we need to ask ourselves, is our system really rehabilitating them? Um, I'm not opposed, as you've said. I think there is a place for incapacitation, and we need prisons for a certain uh, group of people who do need to be taken off of our streets, who are a danger to themselves and others, for a period of time. But uh, we have many people in our prisons that could be dealt with in a different way if they were held accountable within the local community. Well, I like it that, like at the end of your article, you talk about the success of restorative justice, and that's that's really something about the statistics that that um, you know they are they're quite high in terms of reducing recidivism. That's right. And so you said, you know, like the seventy percent of the victims believe that the offenders were adequately punished, which is right. another important thing because we have to think about the victims that are hurt. That's right. And if they feel that that there is justice being done and these people are rehabilitated, I thought that was really important to that's see right. the results of this, right? That's right. And I think that's because we have failed to ask victims what they really need to satisfy justice. And it's the restorative justice process that has set up the platform to give them voice if it's done right. We have been accused at times of being offender-centered, but we do not believe that it is fullness that restorative justice is biased to any actor in the case. But we want to look at the offender's needs, the victim's needs, and the community's needs, and the state's needs, if you want to talk about it that way. Yes. And, and many of the victims need many other things other than just compensation. Many of them would like to have reassurances of safety. Many of them would like to see changed behavior. Many of them would like an apology. These are things that our current system doesn't provide. Right. And many times, at least that, that we've seen out here in, in some places in Orange County, California, is that the victim gets left out of the equation, doesn't get, you know, doesn't really even know what's going on often right. e- in the courts and, and feels victimized by the whole state, the way they're treated, the way they, That's right. so you're right, there, there's a, there's a whole re, re-looking at this. So when we, when we 
which we're really talking about, which you talk about in your article, is really about reframing the whole justice debate, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yeah. And, and it would be reframing it in, in at least three major ways. And, and I put them this way in the article. Justice is realized in a human relational context. In other words, it's embedded in networks of relationships and societies, meaningful connections with other people. It's not only, you know, embedded in our legal procedures or court protocols. And so instead of concentrating on who broke a law, we ask what relationships were breached or broken. Mm -hmm. And this is where I talk about my experience overseas. Africa had huge um, lessons to teach, and I think to teach the world around this idea that, in fact, when a crime is committed, it is a wrong not against just one person or one family, but it, it breaks the harmony in a community. And therefore, we need to think about it in that term, the collective term. Secondly, justice is attained through actions of restitution and reparations, not only through the rulings and interpretations of our legal theory and codes of law and the professionals that work within our current system. And finally, justice is completed, I believe, through restoration and rehabilitation, whatever forms those take, not only through isolation and punishment. In fact, I would argue very rarely through isolation and punishment, but at times we need incapacitation. Exactly. So, so let's talk about what happened. You were in Richmond, Virginia, which, by the way, I, I lived in Charlottesville for three yeah. years. So, yeah, that's I, yeah, that's I, I loved, show. I loved Virginia, and my, in fact, my dentist was in Richmond, but. You know, I had been to Harrisburg, and there's there's so much history in Virginia. It's a beautiful place to it live, is. and I enjoyed it very much. But um, I know that there were uh, problems with race relations, and so let's talk about those race relations and reconciliations and what you did in the Richmond of Richmond, Virginia. Sure. Well, we arrived in Richmond when really there was just the beginning of a serious movement around. Um, race relations, and for the first time, uh, racial, different racial groups really sitting down and trying to talk about a very hard history. And Richmond, of course, has a very hard history in, the, in, in regards to the history of slavery, uh, Richmond being the gateway to the south, and because of the James River coming in from the mouth of Chesapeake and, and uh, so on, a place where there was a lot of slave trade that happened. And yes, that was a long time ago. And yet it had um, implications for the relations all through the last um, few uh, hundred years, last few decades. And so right. these things, I think, are important to talk about, not to dwell on, not to get stuck in, but to talk about. And so we intentionally moved into a 92% African-American community and looked at how could we live and work together across some of these racial and economic divides. And um, it, was a fan, it was an amazing six years and, and very important for uh, this work. And in fact, this is where I started my restorative justice, uh, first restorative justice work on sort of a professional level as the first director for a, what we call a victim-offender reconciliation program, which was essentially bringing victims and offenders of crime together to mediate um, a kind of resolution uh, as a diversion to the regular court process. And so... That was within the criminal justice system. But, of course, we know, and through certain work of, of recent articles like the um, 
uh, Alexandra, uh, sorry, the new Jim Crow, and so on. That our our criminal justice system has also had a bit of has has had a history of historical structural racism, and so it's been critical that we begin to wrestle with some of these very difficult issues. And um, it's not something that there are simple answers at, but we need to have this conversation. So how uh, how did it go in Richmond? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's a whole set of 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 ripple effects of of the work that we were involved in, and we were not the only ones by any means. There is now. Let me start from what there is now, and maybe go back. Uh, Richmond is really a bustling metropolis um, with with a really really uh, keen interest to work at these issues. And one of the main organizations is Hope for the Cities, um, and uh, this is a group that's been working on race relations and conversations for decades now, since the 80s, and um, doing fantastic work, late 80s, or early 90s, sorry, they came in, into, into existence. And so what we see now is, for instance, you can take a 21-marker trail on the slave trail, which, which goes through the history of the slave trade along the James River and in Richmond. And uh, it's, 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 it's a really important uh, but difficult uh, journey to take, but that's been opening up a new conversation in the city. Uh, there's been a lot of looking at um, memorialization, and they have one of, one of three reconciliation memorials in Richmond now that marks um, the, 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 the abolition of slavery. The other one is in, um, in the U.K., where the ships would start, and the other one is in Cameroon where they would pick up human cargo. There was this triangle between Liverpool, UK, Cameroon, and Richmond. And each of them now have a, a um, memorial that is similar, uh, marking this triangle of, of, of that, that very difficult era. So, I mean, and then down to the very specifics. I mean, of course, working at these issues in, in the inner city of Richmond, Virginia, specifically the Churchill area where we lived and worked, was a totally different experience and, and, and a wonderful experience and challenging. Um, just what, is, what does this look like? And within the, uh, for instance, the victim offender conferencing process is, um, is nothing like the, the sort of white middle class social work experience that I was trained in, you know? And, and it meant we look at another way of, of working with relationships and emotions and power and, uh, and those kinds of equilibriums. And so it was, it was a fascinating journey that prepared the way for me to think about uh, reconciliation further and, and particularly to choose to go on to South Africa. So, so tell us a little bit about when you went to South Africa. We went to South Africa January 1994, which if anyone knows the, is following the history there, that was four months before the all-inclusive elections that brought Nelson Mandela into power. And so it was a very historic time. Uh, extremely difficult political transition from the time Mandela was released in 1990 until that point. A lot of violence uh, all around um, the cities in, and the rural areas in South Africa, and we moved into Johannesburg knowing we were going right into the, the thick of the fire, so to speak, as far as political violence at that time, and it was not an easy time to contemplate going into Johannesburg. The year before we came in, um, a white American woman named Amy Beale was right, killed in the when she was killed, in yes. August, and uh, and Chris Hani, who was probably the second most popular leader uh, to Mandela, 
was um, assassinated in his driveway in April, and that was probably the closest that the country had come to an actual bloody civil war, which would have been a very different transition than what we experienced. So it was a very um, historic time, a very um, intense time to be in the country, and I was working specifically with um, an organization that was working right in the midst of the political violence, and so we literally were dodging bullets and... uh, and monitoring funerals and marches and uh, trying to keep the blood from rolling in the streets, as they would say. But now, did you bring your amazing, family? Did you yeah. bring your family with you? I did, and and that's and that was that was one of the probably the most difficult decisions I'd ever made in my life. My wife and I together with a two and four year old, um, and and it wasn't uh, it was not an easy decision to make. But by all means, we felt a tremendous amount of. Um, and that this was the next uh, season for us. And little did we know at that time that it was going to be a 16-year season. So you, it's interesting that what you grew up in, your children also grew up in. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> you I know, remember it's kind of like repeating parents. that. You know? <laughs> right. I remember calling my parents to tell them we were thinking about going, and my mom saying, you're going to take Grace, our two-year-old grandchild, into South Africa. And then she stopped and thought, hmm. I guess we did something like that with you. I don't have a whole lot to say. <laughs> right. You know, when you were talking about Amy Beale, I think I saw a documentary about her parents. Didn't her parents go and, yes. and do reconciliation after their own daughter was killed? Yeah, they, they, they have incredible stature in South Africa because of the stance and the posture in which they've taken uh, since the death of their daughter. They've come back on numerous occasions. Uh, both for the Truth and Reconciliation hearings back in 95, between 95 and 97, and then again to actually meet the, the young men who were responsible for the death of Amy. So they is. actually had a face-to-face meeting, and they also did a number of public appearances where they spoke about their experience uh, with that. I know that that I mean that kind of forgiveness. Let's just talk a little bit about forgiveness. If you sure. know, we've talked about you know, rehabilitating the the offender. But let's talk a little bit about that that need for, for to forgive sure. on the part of the the one who's hurt. Sure, and and I'm I'm glad you brought that up. It, it's a passion of mine, uh, partly because it's it's very controversial, and I'm aware of that. And um, it's particularly controversial because I believe it's been used for you know in a forceful way and in a manipulative way and many times within our religious traditions which makes it particularly painful and i'd like to make it clear that we would never in any of these processes that i'm talking about whether it's the truth commissions or post-war reconstruction or working with ex-militia ex-combatants force anyone you know demand forgiveness uh, that they that they go through a forgiveness process what we want to do is set up the platform the forum for this kind of transaction to happen if people willingly and voluntarily walk into that. But forgiveness is much more than just a religious command. Um, I have a good friend who has taught for years in psychology at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Everett Worthington. He has devoted a great deal of his, his academic career to actually studying forgiveness, not from only from a faith or religious base, but from a psychological perspective. And he's and, and research has clearly indicated that the process of forgiveness, whatever that is, and we're just beginning to understand what that is, through the work of persons like Everett Worthington, is is deeply healing psychologically and deeply important for people to go on and live whole lives. And so getting a handle on what forgiveness is is critical. 
Everett Worthington talks about it as a journey, and he uses the word the ac, um, the uh, uh, acrostic rich. Uh, I mean, reach. Sorry, like to reach across a bridge. R e a c h. Yes. And he says the R stands for recalling the hurt. We have to go back, deal with the history. The E stands for empathic response. He said there is a point where we have to begin to try to understand how another human being could do this to another human being. And everyone goes through that, whether you've experienced a genocide or a mass murder or, you know, a crime. And then comes the time, uh, the A is an actual altruistic gift, is the word he uses. This is out of research. It sounds a little simple, but this is all out of research. That People come to a point where they decide or choose to release themselves and the other person for the sake of their own healing. And they're not um, attaching that to the conditions of whether the other person responds in a certain way or not. And then the C stands for a commitment to go public. And what he discovered is that people where forgiveness really stayed is they talked to other people. They did not keep it within themselves. They sought out other people to walk with them in the journey and support them. And then the H, he says, stands on for hold on, which is not academic at all, but he said that's the point because there will be times in life and feelings where the, re- the sense of revenge and trauma will come back. And you'll need to keep working this cycle of forgiveness many times. It's not a once-off event. Well, that is a perfect way to end. We are out of time, Carl, but that okay. was so wonderful, and we will have to have you back again, and we thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you're doing in restorative justice, and so we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 830 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.